Sadly, we all know that at the moment, Christianity is in decline in the UK. Church attendances are shrinking and the knowledge of the Bible is becoming increasingly limited. Surveys show us, however, that this does not mean that the UK is rapidly becoming an atheistic society. No, religion is alive and well in the modern world. People still believe, but now they believe in what they want to believe in. In the Bible, it tells us that God made men and women in his image. But now we prefer to make God in our image. In the 21st century, the thing that defines God is me. I can create a God as I would want him or her, it or them to be. A God low in moral demands and high in feel-good factor. The writer G.K. Chesterton once said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. We worship what suits us. The only problem is that the anything in that sentence is idolatry. And the second of the Ten Commandments specifically bans it. Verse 4 said, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. The biggest danger when thinking about idolatry is that our preconceived ideas about it often prevent us from seeing what it really is. When we think of idolatry, we think of exotic temples in far-flung places. We think of gold statues and ornate rituals, which often involve lots of incense and lots of bowing down. And as very few of us frequent temples like that, we think, well, we've got no problem with keeping this commandment. But unfortunately, idolatry is much more subtle than that. Idols are not just physical statues, they are often concepts or desires that take over our minds. Take the following five statements, for example. Something gives purpose, meaning and fulfilment to my life. Something is often in my thoughts and I'm enthusiastic about something. Something comforts me when I am down. I read about something, I talk about something, I make friends with those who are interested in something. I desire more something. Now a Christian should want to put God into all those statements. God gives purpose and meaning to my life. God is all often in my thoughts and I'm enthusiastic about him. God comforts me. I read about God. I talk about God. I make friends with people who are interested in God. I desire more of God in my life. An idol is anything, anything at all, that we might be tempted to put in those gaps ahead of him. My career gives purpose and meaning and fulfilment to my life. Football is often in my thoughts. I'm enthusiastic about football. Taylor Swift music comforts me when I'm down. 
I read about whiskey. I talk about whiskey. I make friends with those who are interested in whiskey. I desire more sex. Do we see? An idol is what we live for. They are the things that fill our minds when we lie awake at night. We buy magazines about them. We invest our money and our energy into them. Idolatry occurs when we hold any value, idea, product, activity higher than God. And of course, the most tempting idols are those things that are actually good in and of themselves. A good career, football, music, whiskey, sex, they're all rightly attractive to us. They are good things. But over time, we lose all perspective on them and they come to take over the best of us. So what is the problem with idolatry? Why is it such a bad thing that God felt he needed to make a commandment about it? Well, there are two ways of approaching that question. First, by looking at idolatry from God's perspective and then from our own. We'll start with God's perspective because that is always the most important. I love my wife. Emily and I have been married for over 10 years now. Now imagine if after all that time, Emily came to find a picture of another woman in my wallet and emails from her on my computer. Do you think that Emily would just shrug her soldiers and say, well, this is interesting. He's my husband. He deserves his freedom and his privacy. I'm not going to say anything about it. Or do you think that Emily would come straight up to me and demand to know who this other woman was? We all know exactly what Emily would do. And what if I then turned round to and replied, don't worry, Emily. This is just someone who I turn to for friendship and support. She shows me affection. She encourages me when I'm down. It's all good things that she gives me. Do you think Emily would just accept that? Or do you think that she would be jealous and hurt and angry? Obviously, Emily would be upset. In fact, if she wasn't upset, she would not really love me. Because I don't care what modern society tries to tell us. Human beings yearn to cleave to one person. And one person only. Exclusivity makes us feel valued and safe. We cannot share our love and devotion of someone with another. That breaks us. Emily has a right to expect and insist that I keep myself for her and for her alone. And I want to live up to that expectation because I love her. And I know that I need her in my life. And the idea of there being someone else in our marriage is terrible to both of us. Now, of course, what I have just described to you is adultery. And you may not know this, but adultery is the number one way that idolatry is described in the Bible. In the Bible, the most common illustration used to describe our relationship with God is that of marriage. Marriage is this unique and exclusive commitment with, with no room for another. 
Marriage is a relationship where both sides intentionally dedicate themselves to being faithful to one another. It's a relationship where promises of loyalty, a covenant, has been made. And the Bible tells us that God loves us like that. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, to death and beyond. And what he looks for in return is for us to try and love him in the same way. You see, God is not an abstract, unfeeling concept. He is not an emotionless force. God is a being utterly defined by love. And therefore he feels very deeply indeed. God is literally hurt by our idolatry. He is angered by it in the same way that we are by adultery. In verse 5, God is described as a jealous God. Now, the Richard Dawkinses of this world will try to make out that that is a very bad thing, a very cruel thing. But that's rubbish. That isn't a bad thing. That is a very good thing. Just as a husband or wife who did not care if their spouse committed adultery would be a useless husband or wife, so would God be a useless, unloving God if he didn't care when we betrayed him. Idolatry, then, is a bad thing from God's perspective because it hurts him. But what about looking at the problem of idolatry from a human perspective? Do you remember from last week how I spent ages trying to labour the point that God gave the Ten Commandments for our benefit? These ten laws, they're not a burden, they're not a curse, they're a blessing. Do you remember that? It's really important. God gave Israel the Ten Commandments after he'd already shown his great love for them. He'd already rescued them in the most dramatic of ways. He busted them out of slavery in Egypt and set them free. And God then gave them the Ten Commandments to help them live life really well in this new stage of their lives. Now the importance of that background is this. God is not just against idolatry because it's hurtful to him. God is against idolatry most of all because it's hurtful to us. He really does have our very best interests at heart. So so how does idolatry damage us? Well, I think there are three ways. First of all, idolatry lies to us. And lets us down. Idolatry is a lie, pure and simple. We are taking things that are not God and pretending that they are. At some point, those things are going to let us down. It is guaranteed. We idolize sex, thinking that it will lead us to living in some sort of permanent ecstatic bliss. No, it won't. At some point, we'll have to get up off our backs and go to work. We idolise the human body, thinking that through diet and fitness regimes we can turn ourselves into gods and goddesses. No, we can't. Gravity and ageing always does it work. We will eventually all go saggy. (laughs) We idolise possessions, 
thinking that they'll make us happy and content. No, they won't. We will always want more. Idols always lie to us, and they eventually let us down. In Jeremiah 10, it says this, Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. Well, quite. Second, idolatry damages us because it enslaves us. And it disfigures us. You know, human beings always, always become like that which they worship. It's as if our idols acquire power over us and and they grip us in this ever-tightening embrace. Take the idol of sex again. Many people worship that idol through the temple of internet pornography. You start by watching one thing to get your kick. But then gradually you have to watch harder and harder pornography to get the same level of satisfaction. And eventually you end up in such a deluded state that you've lost the ability to have a normal, fulfilling relationship with another human being. Or take the idol of money. The more we think of it, the more we want it. And gradually we get greedier and greedier and we'll go to greater and greater lengths to get more of it. And then when the enslavement's really started, we become paranoid. Rich people start putting up alarms and CCTV cameras everywhere because they're terrified of losing it. And eventually we find it completely impossible to take any pleasure at all in the simple things of life. Listen to these words from Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But our idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouth but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear and noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound within their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. That psalm is clear. that The idols are completely false. They are useless. And yet, they maintain this power to make us like them. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. The more we worship idols, the more unreal and untrue and false and dead we become. Idolatry ends up making us something less than human. So idols lie to us and they let us down. They enslave us and they distort us. These are two terrible consequences of idolatry. But there's a worse one still to come. The third way that idolatry damages us as human beings is that it robs us of a proper relationship with the living God. The early church father, Augustine, once wrote, uh, addressing God, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Now what Augustine is explaining there is that there is a void in each one of our lives that only God can fill. 
And therefore, the longer we spend trying to fill it with idols that are never going to satisfy us, the longer it will be before we find true contentment. The true contentment that we all long for. And the Christians in this room will testify that a loving relationship with God brings wholeness and peace and joy in a way like nothing else can. The Bible says that a relationship with God makes us more and more like Jesus. And he was the most complete and the most inspirational human being that ever lived. A relationship with God leads to forgiveness. We don't carry shame or guilt anymore. A relationship with God leads to eternal life. We do not want to miss out on these things. But these things are robbed from us if we put idols in the place of God. So idolatry hurts God and it greatly damages us. No wonder God is so against it. No wonder he has made a commandment about it. Idolatry really is serious. Did you notice the extra information given after the commandment in that reading? You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the news. Idolatry even affects the children and the grandchildren of those who bow down to idols. Now that's not because God is a vindictive God who loves to punish innocent people. It's because idolatry has repercussions that unless God intervenes, will roll on for years and years. Whole families, whole generations get enslaved by it. And that is because what the children see the parents worshipping, they will copy. And we see that on Isla. There are so few children in our churches here. There are even less teenagers because children worship what their parents worship. And so this damage caused by us replacing the holy creator God with something far, far less rolls on down the generations. When God gave this commandment, he wasn't trying to spoil our fun. He is bending over backwards to try and get us to see that the stakes are really high here. He doesn't want the suffering and the brokenness to go on any longer. So far then, we've defined what idolatry is. We've recognized how we're all tempted by it. We've laid out just what a dangerous issue this is. And we've heard loud warnings, and some of them are quite scary. But we're going to finish with something positive. We're going to finish with the encouragement to get on and tackle idolatry in our lives. You know, in many ways, the world that we live in today is very similar to the world of the New Testament in the Bible, in that idols are everywhere. They're everywhere today, and they were everywhere back then as well. 
In the book of Acts, we read of the apostles traveling around the Mediterranean region, confronting idols and calling people back to worship the Lord instead. Take Paul, for example, in this picture. He was greatly distressed to see that Athens was full of idols. But he still went there and he preached about Jesus and people believed and were set free. And we should take encouragement from this that we can still overcome idolatry today and put Jesus back to the centre of our lives. So how do we do it? Well, first of all, we need to recognise it. We need to recognise the idolatry in our lives and we need to confront it. We can't just shrug our shoulders and pretend it doesn't matter. We cannot give in to it as if nothing can be done. We are to name it for what it is and take it on. At AA meetings, attendees famously have to state out loud, I am so-and-so, I am an alcoholic. Well, in quiet reflection, we can do the same. I'm Andrew. I used to utterly idolise my football team. Now I'm tempted to idolise physical fitness, academic achievement and my cottage on the Isle of Skye. I wonder what it would be for you. Once we've named the idolatry, we then invite God in. We invite God into the situation and we ask him to reign over it. As we've said, many of the things that we idolise are actually good things. We would harm ourselves by getting rid of them completely, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But we must fight to get perspective. When I watch football, I don't join in with all the chants anymore. I reserve my worship for God instead. When I cycle to get fit, I try to listen to worship music. Don't do it all the time, but I try to. I enjoy my cottage, but I try to use it to bless those who otherwise couldn't afford a holiday. I haven't solved any of those yet, but I'm trying. And alongside all these actions, we can try to foster a rhythm in life that keeps centering us back on God. Public worship on a Sunday, daily devotions, saying grace before meals, worship music in the car, meeting Christians for coffee. We actively put things into our diary that means that God is at the centre of our attention, that puts him back to being first, that he gets more notice than the things that I am tempted by. When the early Christians arrived in Britain, they deliberately built their places of worship on pagan sites. If you go around the west coast of Scotland and you see a Celtic cross standing up, you can almost guarantee that that used to be the location of pagan worship. They deliberately planted a flag for God on hostile soil. And we too can actively choose to worship God where idols were previously worshipped. It's by taking practical action that we keep this commandment. By tackling idolatry, we please God and we greatly improve our lives.